and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the Ukrainian international flight that was shot down by IRGC missiles over Tehran in January 2020. We talk about justice for the families of the 176 passengers and crew that were killed on board that plane and how the international community can help push for more transparency from Iranian authorities. My guest today is Michael Page, Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa Division at Human Rights Watch, and he supervises Human Rights Watch's work on Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, Syria, Yemen, and Lebanon. Michael, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nikar. Thank you for being here. Let's talk about what happened on January 8th. 2020 in Iran. Just to give a brief explanation of the event, it was the night that Iran was trying to retaliate against the assassination of the Revolutionary Guards commander Qasem Soleimani, who was killed by the U.S. on January 3rd. The Iranians um, were shooting missiles at a U.S. base in Iraq and After that operation ended, a Ukrainian flight that had just taken off from Tehran International Airport was also shot down by IRGC missiles. Talk about the events of that night a little bit, and then we want to talk about what happened after in the days following that incident and then the year that has passed since. But let's talk about that night. In, yeah, in ab- absolutely. So, you know, as you, as you alluded to, you know, it, this January 8th came in a real context of escalating tensions between the U.S. and Iran. So as you mentioned, you know, on December 27th, there were uh, Iraqi militias that had fired rockets into uh, uh, places where U.S. forces were present. An American contractor was killed. There were, on December 29th, uh, retaliation by uh, American forces on suspected militia positions. And then on January 3rd, as you said, there's this huge escalation by the U.S. uh, in assassinating uh, Qasem Soleimani, who is, as you said, the head of Quds Force uh, of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And so what happens then is we we kind of move to an almost... uh, uh, a potential for kind of a, a war footing. And in the span of the next several hours after his death, there are Iranian missiles that are fired at uh, two air bases in Iraq where American forces are present. And Iran's foreign minister, uh, uh, Javad Zarif, Mohammed Javad Zarif, had said, you know, I believe on Twitter that these strikes were proportionate measures in self-defense you know, under Article 51 of the UN Charter. So that's the context of January 8th and this really kind of boiling point of tension between the U.S. and Iran. And so what the U.S. did is the U.S. actually announced um, in its Federal Aviation Service, they announced to all flights to, to avoid Iranian and I believe Iraqi airspace. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that the Iranians did not do the same. They did not shut down their airspace on January 8th. And so what we know, and you know, there are pretty detailed timelines, including in a Canadian government report, what we know is the following, is that uh, that flight PS752 took off uh, from 
Imam Khomeini's international airport uh, uh, bound for Kiev in Ukraine at, I believe, around 6 a.m. Departure was a bit late. It went up into the air, and at 6.18 a.m., the aircraft had crashed into the ground. And after that, what immediately followed was really this kind of complete lack of, of transparent explanation on Iranian authority side of what actually happened. And we eventually find out that it was the Iranian government itself uh, and the IRGC forces which had shot down the plane. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I just want to review for some of our audience that for three days, Iranian authorities lied about that event. The IRGC, nobody took responsibility. There were all kinds of conspiracies and, you know, distractions put forth of what could have possibly happened to the plane. And then slowly we started hearing rumors of a potential missile being involved, which many people, including some of the families, couldn't even believe that something like that would have happened, myself included. And then finally, after three days of lies, we... Um, saw the statement coming from the Iranian government, the armed forces, that it was, in fact, Iranian missiles that, as they said mistakenly, but they they shot down the civilian plane, killed 176 people on board, including many children and people, a lot of them with ties to Canada. Now, I want you to talk about um, how the acceptance and the acknowledgement of this came, the international pressure, the role that the international pressure played in this, and also other governments that were involved, the government of Ukraine, the government of Canada, where many of these passengers used to live or had ties with. And as your organization is saying that the Human Rights Watch has said that the Iranian authorities should commit to a genuinely transparent investigation of this incident and cooperate with international bodies to uncover the truth. Talk about um, this uh, this accountability or lack of and transparency from the Iranian government in those three days and then the year that followed that. Thanks, Nagar. I mean, so I, I think it's worth saying at the outset is that it was, it w- should have been absolutely clear from Iranian authority side what had happened, the tragedy that happened, really just moments after it occurred. Mm-hmm. But instead, what we had was, was the opposite. And we had another example, uh, unfortunately, of Iranian authorities uh, hiding or, or really, I mean, I don't think there's another word for it, like, you know, lying blatantly you know, about what had happened in the immediate aftermath. And mm-hmm. just to give one example, you know, uh, Ali uh, 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 Zadeh, who is the head of Iran's civil aviation organization, you know, he said in a press conference on January 10th that he was certain no missiles hit the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And then just, you know, I think, believe hours or just a little bit after, you know, Hassan Rouhani, the president of Iran, you know, tweeted out that that Iran was responsible it was deeply regrettable about missiles that were fired, and he had pledged, you know, that that there would be further investigations and prosecutions, which have not happened. And so, you know, it was very clear immediately that Iran was responsible and they had carried it out. Yet, instead, what not only did they deny it, it, it seems that they they stalled. While it's unclear why, you know, even on other issues. So, you know, according to 
a Canadian report, they didn't even send the black box for this investigation until six months later uh, for international organizations and authorities to do it, you know, contrary to their to their obligations. You know, and there were also media photos that bulldozers were actually at the site of the plane crash mm-hmm. uh, as early as January 10th, which again was completely contrary to uh, having a transparent and open investigation I- into this, into these events. And so, uh, you know, it, it really started, I think that Iranian authorities started off with a complete lack of trust that, uh, or created a complete lack of trust with other international actors, Canada being at the forefront of it because so many individuals that were that were killed on this flight uh, in which, I mean, there were 176 people on board, uh, everyone on, on board died. So many individuals had ties to, to Canada, as well as victims from uh, Ukraine, Sweden, Afghanistan, and the United Kingdom. And that really has kind of continued throughout. So those three days, I think I want to say they, they really set a precedent for how Iran, you know, would behave and has behaved now that we're, we're one year on from this tragedy, which is untransparently with uh, a real lack of or creating an incredible lack of trust with its own citizens and victims of families. And third, acting in a way that is very similar to how it's handled other human rights abuses most notably the November 2019 crackdown on protesters, where, again, no one has been held accountable for abuses and killings of protesters, and there's no clarity on on investigations occurring into that event. And so, sadly to say, is it's it's a pattern that these three days uh, continue to continue to show and has and has occurred throughout the rest of this year. Mm. Um, I want to talk about what happened to the families and the protesters a little bit later. But we know that, as you mentioned, President Rouhani, after they took responsibility, at some point he also insisted that those responsible for this event would be prosecuted. What have we seen as far as prosecution or any form of accountability for those responsible for the strategy? So uh, I think what we know is is pretty limited. We know, I believe there are, are six people who have been arrested or, or were arrested. Um, we don't really have clarity on the charges against them. We don't have any guarantees that uh, trials will be open and transparent. Um, and we have no idea about to, to what level or degree uh, the, Iran's domestic inva- investigation, you know, has carried out in terms of rank. So really, there's just a it's a it's it's an incredibly opaque and untransparent process in terms of investigations. And that's now now uh, a year on. And we know little more than we did from months ago. Mm-hmm. And let's also talk about the families, because 176 people 
were killed basically on that plane, but they're left with many families and loved ones. Some of them are torn. Some are some live in Iran. Uh, some live abroad. Many of them live in Canada. Talk about how the families have been treated. I know they've been under pressure by the authorities when it came to burying their loved ones, when it came to protesting or demanding accountability. Um, talk about some of some of what the families went through as much as your organization is aware. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, there's several angles to it. So, so first of all, in the immediate aftermath, in the aftermath of the announcement of Iran's responsibility for downing the civilian airplane, um, there were protests in Iran, um, critical of the government. Uh, at least 13 people that we've documented have been sentenced to prison terms for peaceful protests. And, you know, we're continuing to investigate this. That number of people arrested just for protesting uh, on this issue could be as high as 27 people. Mm-hmm. As for the victims themselves or the families of, of victims, you know, authorities ha- have have really pressured them to, uh, how to say this, to, to really push them into accepting this this frame that their their family members who died are martyrs and mm. that you know to push them to uh, to bury their loved ones in cemeteries dedicated to martyrs or engrave the word martyr on their tombstones really against the family's will and you know uh, essentially authorities have also kind of either intruded on memorial and burial services or according to uh, this Canadian report, they've seemed to uh, almost threaten or intimidate uh, families of victims abroad um, for uh, you know issuing critical public statements of the Iranian government. Mm-hmm. And the reason this is so pro- problematic, and I think here's m- my analysis is is that you know this is a, another example of how. Iranian authorities really want to deal with accountability, which is to say, not at all, but rather what we'll do is we'll we'll claim that, look, your, your loved ones are martyrs, but don't ask any more questions about how this happened. Don't protest about the lack of accountability from the government. You know, we will we will signal that uh, uh, the victims are are cherished. We will consider compensation, but that's it. And really, that's the message that the Iranian uh, government and authorities ha- has put out in complete contrast to what President Rouhani himself said three days after the crash in which there will actually be transparent investigations and people will be held accountable. Mm-hmm. And I want to mention when you uh, talked about the protesters that after it was made clear that this plane was in fact shot down by the IRGC itself, there were massive protests in Tehran and some other cities in Iran where a lot of students specifically came out and it's, the protests actually started in uh, some prominent universities where um, some of the passengers of the plane were in fact graduates of those universities cities. And uh, so far, we've seen some prominent activists. I want to name some of them. Bahara Hedayat, who is a former student leader. Mehdi Mahmoudian, also a political activist, were sentenced to um, prison terms for their participation, either in protests or even posting about this event on Twitter. And this also includes another um, activist, Mustafa Hashemizadeh, a student at University of Tehran. Um, But I want you to now talk about pressure from some of these foreign governments led basically by the Canadian government who had the 
highest number of uh, people on that plane who had ties to Canada they were either Canadian nationals or they lived in Canada. Talk about how this pressure, the international pressure, specifically from these governments, have impacted um, Iran's handling of of this incident and they're basically their repeated calls on Iran to cooperate with the multilateral investigations um, over the past year. So I, I think, you know, at the outset, so I think one reason or probably the reason Iranian authorities and President Rouhani in the first place admitted uh, fault after after three days approximately of lying about it or, or hiding the truth is simply that foreign governments and media, you know, had enough information to say, to, to essentially reject wholesale what Iranian authorities were, were trying to pretend happened, you know, trying to concoct that it was, you know, it wasn't them, uh, maybe other other various almost kind of conspiracy theories being being wound up. And so as step number one, kind of Canadian authorities in coordination with a number of other governments, you know, really compiled uh, uh, a huge amount of, of evidence that forced Iranian authorities' hands to, you know, ad- admit uh, that they were the ones who, who shot down the aircraft. In terms of pressure over the past year, and in the future, I, I would say this. I would say it, it, it's going to be a difficult process, right? I mean, Iranian authorities are regularly criticized by uh, a number of Western governments. They are criticized in UN institutions. Uh, they are under you know, quite severe U.S. sanctions currently. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, uh, I want to acknowledge that it can be difficult to pressure I- Iranian authorities in the wake of either tragedies that they have caused, you know, that are that are human rights violations or very widespread crackdowns on on largely peaceful protesters like in November 2019. So where where I do think, um, you know, in particular Canada and other Western governments and international groups, you know, have some leverage on Iranian authorities is is ultimately through the uh, International Court of Justice. So Iran is bound by several international treaties that concern civil aviation. And one of them is this Convention on International Civil Aviation, known as the Chicago Convention. And that really, those are there are real obligations for any state to, to, to not use weapons against civil aircraft. And if there are breaches of the Chicago Convention, uh, these need to be, these disputes need to be negotiated within it in the Council of International Civil Aviation Organization, so the ICAO, which is a, an agency in the UN. If those, if those disputes are not successfully uh, mediated, then ultimately states could bring legal claims against Iran to the International Court of Justice regarding this shooting down of a civilian airliner and then, you know, having no accountability or transparency on on what actually happened. I'll just maybe mention there's also outside of states, you know, there are there are several jurisdictions, uh, Canada and the U.S. being among them, where individuals, uh, so family members of victims 
could potentially try to sue the Iranian government as it as it regards to terrorism, in which there are exceptions for state immunity uh, under U.S. and Canadian law. But, you know, that is is something that could take uh, years Mm-hmm. And also in your statement by Human Rights Watch, you do mention that just recently in the past week, there have been uh, some events organized in Iran by authorities, for example, um, to commemorate the victims of the crash, including a video projection on a landmark in Tehran. And you said, I, I want to quote you, that public commemorations do not make up for the intimidation of victims' families and wrongful prosecution of peaceful protesters. So moving forward, what do you think uh, should happen or what does the path forward look for as far as transparency and any form of appropriate redress for the families of, of these victims? So what I would say is that, first of all, compensation is an absolutely necessary but completely insufficient action on behalf of Iranian authorities to the families of victims. There's an absolute need for real accountability. And what that means is transparency and openness on those who have been arrested, the charges against them, and for trials to be open and transparent. And I think that's something where Canadian authorities, as well as the incoming Biden administration, can try to escalate public pressure, at the very least, through kind of public public statements and other diplomatic pushes for that to actually occur, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, if there is an increasing political or international diplomatic cost uh, to the Iranian authorities' complete lack of accountability and transparency, you know, on this, on the shooting down of, of a civilian airliner, that might make them or make authorities change their calculus about how much, you know, they actually reveal. So that's that's what I see as kind of the, the, the core issue at hand, which is Iranian authorities actually hold people accountable and do it in a way where it is transparent and open. Mm-hmm. And I want to also note that some families are not even interested in a compensation. They've called it a slap in the face when there is a lack of this transparency and accountability, as you just mentioned. And you mentioned the Biden administration coming the administration is changing here in the U.S. The Trump administration is outgoing soon. Uh, there will be a team. Uh, the president-elect himself has vowed to restart diplomacy with Iran, return back to the nuclear deal, which the Trump administration left. And that would mean lifting some of the pressure and sanctions from Iran. And as far as the issue of human rights, we hear a lot of human rights activists and groups um, reminding basically the administration to not forget these violations and abusers and to deal with Iran or restart diplomacy in a in a responsible way. How do you think would be the responsible and effective way of, of conducting diplomacy with Iran by the U.S.? And how much can the Biden administration do as far as having impact on, on human rights violations in Iran, including the issue of the, this Ukrainian plane and the protesters and the way the families are being treated after? It's, it's first worthwhile saying uh, that the kind of central problem on how the Trump administration used or referenced human rights in the Middle East is that they took a completely and transparently instrumentalized approach, right? Which is 
rhetorically supporting human rights with regards to Iran and almost using that as a uh, justifying that as a as a as a reason for increased sanctions, which uh, unfortunately actually hurt Iranians' right to health, as, as human rights is documented, because those sanctions were so broad, they actually affected Iranians' ability to access essential medicines and medical equipment, but then completely ignoring human rights uh, uh, issues across the Middle East for the most part. And mm-hmm. there's just egregious examples that are very easy to kind of like list, but maybe at the top of that list... You know, is how the Trump administration treated allies such as uh, Saudi Arabia and in particular Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and mm-hmm. his, uh, you know, kind of unrelenting or escalation of repression in Saudi Arabia and the potential senior level Saudi involvement in the murder of Saudi dissident and critic Jamal Khashoggi. So so that, I think, from the Biden administration's kind of shift, and they have promised reassessments of human rights in certain countries like Saudi Arabia, I think the important is, at the very least, trying to adopt a more consistent approach to applying human rights issues and frameworks within the Middle East, whether the perpetrator is Iran or whether it's a close ally like Saudi Arabia, Israel, or the United Arab Emirates. And so I think that will go a long way rhetorically in, in terms of trying to balance that. But I, I certainly think it's the case that that it, it's critical the Biden administration does not drop human rights, you know, in exchange for returning to a, a nuclear deal or something that they're no longer going to raise with Iran. I think the Biden administration is critical just for their own credibility and, again, for a consistent approach across the region that they are also raising these issues. And I think an issue like the downing of, of, of the civilian aircraft last year is a very good example of where, you know, uh, Biden administration, along with allies like Canada, should really be trying to escalate diplomatic and political costs for Iran not being transparent and not, uh, 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 you know, holding people accountable. And actually, you know, the only people that they are trying to hold accountable is they're actually just abusing people who protest it in the first place. Those are the only people being charged. And so I think there's a, there's a, real, there's a, a, a real value to uh, Western countries trying to apply a more consistent standard, starting with the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. And finally, Michael, let's talk about military conflict and the cost of war, specifically because you work on other countries also across the region. Um, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had said that the victims of this Ukrainian airliner would still be alive if recent escalation of tensions in the region had not happened. And we know that the military tensions between Iran and the U.S. and, and other um, allies involved in the region had been intensifying in the past year or so. Talk about this in the bigger picture in the context of war and and the civilian casualties of basically a conflict that didn't even start between Iran and the U.S. and we saw what happened, but beyond that and what's going on uh, across the region. Yeah, it, it, it really is the case that it, that it's civilians that are absolutely the ones that are paying the price for increased tensions and ongoing conflicts in the Middle East, uh, while 
people who are perpetrators of heinous abuses, including war crimes, uh, you know, have, have not met with accountability for the most part. And, you know, that, that, isn't, that isn't just the, the victims of, of the downing of, of airlines flight, you know, 752, but it's also entire conflicts such as Yemen. Just to give, just to give one example is that, you know, Yemeni civilians are paying this atrocious price for the conflict. And there's been recently in the news that the U.S. is going to designate the the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. And again, it kind of really encapsulates the problem. The issue is not that the Houthis uh, are a, a good group. They've committed serious abuses, cracked down on journalists, they've committed war crimes themselves. Um, but the designation that the U.S. Is, is going to carry out has the potential to affect millions of Yemeni civilians that might not be able to access uh, humanitarian aid, which they increasingly rely on. And that's really kind of the situation or uh, that or that dynamic is playing out in so many places. Syria, Yemen, Libya, it's, it's civilians, it is refugees, it is migrant workers, it is, it is people without power that are being abused by groups and states with power, uh, and they're the ones who are ultimately paying the price, while, while government officials uh, continue to avoid accountability. And, you know, the hope is trying to push in 2021 for some modicum of accountability for officials that are the perpetrators and, and are the ones who are the key abusers in these conflicts. And just to follow up quickly, you um, when you talk about this, we also know that um, human rights groups and, and prominent activists do push for designations of specific abusers or violators of human rights, or as some call it, even human rights sanctions. Talk about that effectiveness of of something like that and how you think it should be done to basically benefit the advancement of human rights in the region. Yeah, I think a critical component of, of, of considering sanctions is really whether it has unintended consequences for uh, civilians or populations writ large um, you know and but it, it, at the same time it is very hard to hold officials accountable there are the US has kind of human rights related sanctions that uh, include uh, Magnitsky sanctions that are aimed to target individual, uh, abusers, usually with uh, uh, asset freezes and travel bans to the U.S., that that really try to signal, even if you know sometimes symbolically, that these are individuals that need to be held to account. And so I would just take a, a general note: is that sanctions in and of themselves, you know, can have very different effects. But at times, the sanctions as they've been applied, especially you know in regard to Iran, really have been a completely counter productive to this argument that the U.S. supports human rights issues in Iran. You can't say that if you're also applying broad sanctions that have the actual effect of harming Iranians' right to health. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, on that note, Michael, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast and for a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. That was Michael Page, Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa Division at Human Rights Watch. 
And I want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.